<laughs> Sometimes you're funny and I laugh and it's annoying. <laughs> Hi, hello, this is Climate Change. No, what the heck is the name of this book? Hello, Climate Change. Right, this is uh, Waking Up and Taking Action, One Conversation at a Time, and I am Amy Callisher. I'm here with my husband, Jim McPherson, the humorous and annoying man. Both, both at the same time. That's a tough act to pull off. Well, you are talented. <laughs> and annoying. <laughs> all right. So, um, I have, first of all, just want to say, I've been getting notes from people who are like appreciating this podcast, which has been wonderful. And I just spent the last five minutes trying to dig them up because there was some really good um, sort of prompts for me in them. And I, there's one that I can't find, but I'll find it for the next time. Anyway, before we get into that, what would you like to say? Anything in particular? Last time we talked, it was like right after the election and we were still maybe a little nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm less nauseous, but uh, just as worried. Just as worried. Just yeah. as concerned. Maybe it's... It's that post-election period where the temptation is to sort of go back into normalcy. Mm. And I don't want to feel like what happened is normal. But at the same time, people lead their lives. People lead their lives? People lead their lives. You know, lives continue on. You go to work, you have the ups and downs of your own life. And... Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you view things, um, the immediate aftermath of the election kind of recedes a little bit into the background. Mm -hmm. That makes me think about something I've been thinking about. (laughs) That's a weird statement. But what I mean to say is, I kind of come back to some thoughts I had last year when we were recording about how trying to have conversations with people about climate change who are just, you know, just can't just can't at all. We talked about this the other day, I think, um, you know, about this time being at a party and, um, talking about it. And a friend of mine at the party just wanted to talk about going sailing with her friends. And, um, you know, at one point said, can we change the subject? (laughs) I wanted something more pleasant. And I felt a pang of pain about that, but I also felt compassion for her because, you know, you look a little deeper into this story and you know, this is someone whose husband just died like in the last six months and who's just trying to like, whose, whose way of handling emotion was, um, to outrun, you know, outrun the pain and to ask somebody who's trying to outrun such deep personal pain to look at something like this is, is a very big ask. And, um, and then I also mentioned this other friend of mine who, who was just having a baby and was also dealing with, um, a lifetime of having to care for her crazy and, um, her, well, that's not a very nice word, but her mentally ill and also physically ill mother, you know, she had gone through college having to make decisions about her mother's medical care, um, while the rest of people were just trying to get their homework done. And the upshot for her was some part of the sort of aftermath of all the trauma she'd been through was where she had sort of couldn't go to sleep unless she double checked that the oven was turned off and those kind of things, like just things that she had control of, she would hyper control. And, um, 
I guess they call it obsessive compulsive disorder. In any case, the idea of asking her while she was extra stressed because she's now bringing life into the world to think about this was also a big ask. So it just sort of made me think, okay, so the key to, you know, when we're faced with this great big denial in our country, we could get angry about it, but we could also get more compassionate about it with the people in our lives who just maybe aren't technically in denial in terms of, yes, it's happening, no, it's not, but are in denial of the work that needs to be done because it's just too much for them to take on. What are your thoughts? Well, I was just thinking about, I don't know, maybe this is not an accurate reflection of how humans operate, but it just seems to me that we we always pay most attention to those things that most immediately affect us. Mm-hmm. So if our house is on fire, we go and get a bucket or a hose and try to put the fire out because that immediately puts us in danger. Right, yeah. And then we pay progressively less attention to those things that are of an immediate nature. And climate change is like one of those tricky ones where it's far off for those of us right here. At least that's our perception in our daily lives. We're not immediately affected, most of us. And even even when we attempt to say, well, there's the you know the the droughts are more pronounced the rainfall is larger the flooding situation is getting worse people can still sort of write that off as that's just nature going through its its normal stuff and i think it does dilute that sense of urgency like we most people can can push this away when they look at what are the things that I need to pay most attention to today or tomorrow or in the next year, you know, it's not the, the melting of the, of the Arctic. It's, 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 you know, what's the next thing that's going to affect me and my family. But you know what? It's not, I don't think it's just that. It's also that if your house is on fire and you get a bucket or you call 911, whatever, there's a, there's a something you can do. You know what to do. Right. The other part is, is that people maybe, you know, can look at this long enough to feel how urgent and desperate it is, but they still don't know what to do. Yeah. And um, and there's lots of voices that are going to tell them tell you what to do, but at that point, there's so, it's hard to know who to trust and yeah. get overwhelmed. Right. Isn't the, we've talked about this on the podcast? In fact, I interviewed someone who wrote an article about it that that introduced me to the idea of the uh, what is it called? It's a psychological. Um, phenomenon when so the, the example that she gave was if you're there's she was in a train and somebody was having a seizure and a child was it was a, the parent of this child and the child was yelling help 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 but no one was doing anything because no one everyone was frozen and it was partly not knowing what to do and also partly thinking there's someone else better qualified probably or Mm. someone who's sitting closer to them or just you know sort of the idea of taking um it's a stand a bystander effect that's the that's the thing so we have a sort of bystander effect going on where we all freeze in the face of what this is thinking well we don't know what to do somebody should and does and now we're having a (laughs) president who's committing to ending funding for studies from NASA, our, our National Air and Space um, 
associate. What's the A? The last A. It doesn't matter. Aeronautic and Space Administration. Something like yeah. Yeah. So and they're they're they've been able to publish they through satellite imagery. Um, they can see how little water is left in in the ground in places, and and they're really like they're really able to like make this concrete. Um, you know, I think in a way, part of what you brought up was the idea of denial about the cause, but but the, there is also we're at a point now where it's not just about stopping causing it; it's also responding to what's we're already too late for, and right. that part is. Like that doesn't have to be controversial, you know, it's like whether or not man is causing it, it's happening. And yes, obviously it would be great if it would be even better for us. Like my friend who's checking the oven repeatedly because it's something she can control. I think actually it would be some, there would be some sense of relief if we could see the problem and also see that we could change it. But regardless of that, we still have issues to to address. And I, th- I honestly think that a lot of people in positions of power, you, we've disagreed about this. Like, and, and I, and I, I honestly don't, it doesn't even feel important to me to, to understand what's going on psychologically with Trump. It's really much more important that we just figure out how to work around him or shut him down. But, um, but I think it's very plausible that there are people who are in positions of power and wealth controlling resources who have been positioning themselves um, for scarcity of water and other resources for a long time to, to to be in ownership of those resources? There's a great documentary about water that's very disturbing, and it's it's years old now. It's like ten years old, I think. Do you know what I'm talking about? I yeah. can't remember what it's called. Is it yeah. called Water? I don't remember, but I, I remember the up. documentary. Yeah. And if I don't get to it during the podcast, I'll put it in the in the notes that the that go with the podcast, so you can mm-hmm. look it up yourself if you're curious. Anyway, I lost my train of thought. Where was I going? Where are you going? You a lot have a thought. Of different places. I okay. just when you were talking about water, I believe it was. Gosh, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember. It was either Peru or Bolivia where they're recently talking about the impending water shortages mm. because so much of their of their water is from glaciers right. and those glaciers are are melting they're they're not going to be able to yield the the kind right. of water that they have historically fresh water mm-hmm. and they're up against a real potential disaster mm-hmm. in that their water supplies are are, are dwindling yeah and that's the kind of stuff that is real. I mean, that becomes the fire that is now encroaching your house. Right. And unfortunately for us, I guess, we still view it as this other country's problem. Mm-hmm. Like we don't see our connection to that. Mm-hmm. So can, for somebody who doesn't see their connection to that, what would you say? If they were saying, well, how are we connected to that? That's a good question. Well, it it still is is a is a longer connection. It's not immediate, but ultimately, when when countries around the world have shortages or droughts that lead to mass dislocation of populations, mm-hmm. that creates a lot of political instability. That can lead to a lot of unrest that can eventually involve us. If these are countries that we're allied with and you have 
potential overthrows of their governments, or you have, as in the Middle East and African countries, you have refugee crises that, that I mean, this could be the new norm where, where you have whole populations that need to leave. They can't survive where they're at. And, right. and in order to, to save their, their families, they need to leave where they're living. So that, has, that hasn't immediately impacted us uh, in the way that it has con- other countries in the, in the Middle East and, and Europe and the whole Mediterranean area. But it could. Yeah. It certainly could. We have a very large southern border. And, you know, Donald Trump has not said, I'm going to build the wall to keep out those people fleeing from Bolivia. the effects of, of <laughs> climate change. <laughs> But that's, but that's the upshot. That's that's another potential upshot is yeah. people for the sake of survival are going to move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's some thoughts that came to me about the connection. Here's like one really fundamental connection when I think about when you're a child and you're growing up and you're learning about the world and you learn that you know maybe in down the street from you or maybe across the planet from you there are people who are struggling to survive and probably a lot of them not surviving. We hear about that all the time. Um, But you learn as a child in our privileged world that you get maybe directly or indirectly the message that there's nothing you can do. And you also get the message that... You get the message that we're all in a certain survival mode. And those of us who have need to hold on to it because it could be us. And a different model of being human in the world could be that everyone is us. That there is no other, that we're, that we're, that we are, there is enough resource and enough, um, not only enough stuff like resource, like water, food, um, land, um, but there's also enough technology to use that well so that everybody is provided for on a basic level. And imagine how different the world would be if we, if we grew up with that kind of idea that nobody's going to be, nobody's in danger here. You don't have to just kind of shut down your feelings about that other stuff, those other people, those, uh, the idea of other you get to actually um, be part of a world that takes care of itself. And I, I think it's really hard to overestimate how deeply and profoundly that would change the way we live. I think there's so much that we do to insulate ourselves from feeling bad about things and feel, being, feeling bad about ourselves because we're allowing that, for example. Um, that, I mean, we... I think, all right, so like I, 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 another person in our life that we were talking about who are a family and that we know that um, we, I was saying that I was seeing how, how much middle class kind of pressures of, of having nice things and looking a certain way were affecting those people um, to the point where they're like have remortgaged their home many times and even though they have a very, they have way more income than we have, um, you know, are are feeling a financial stress that 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 uh, that is significant. 
how that's another example of people in our lives who are not really able to really respond to climate change because of this. And I think that there's it's an over an outgrowth of that insulating ourselves from feeling bad. We insulate ourselves, well, well, I have the right things, I'm okay, you know. And and it's true that we there is confusion in our society that if you show up without without the right clothes on or the right grooming that you're going to be con- considered suspect in some way in certain environments. Yeah, you're not like going to church in jeans or whatever it is that happens to be in your little world. If I, um, Going to a job interview or going to work in the wrong clothes or, or wearing the same clothes repeatedly because you don't have as many, you know. Um, so anyway, all of that, all of that serves as it just becomes part of a sort of a, a downward spiral of feeling bad that we just have to keep insulating ourselves even more. Like, why do I have all this nice stuff and other people are starving? Like, and I'm not, I don't know what to, I, I think I'll watch this show that will make me laugh because this makes me feel terrible to even think about. <laughs> Anything you want to say? Well, I mean, <sighs> I I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, one of them is, you know, growing up in the United States, we're we're really just immersed in this consumer culture. And in some ways, we're sort of taught, like you're doing a good thing by going out and consuming, by spending, by keeping the economic machinery, you know, Mm. well-oiled. So in some ways you know, the, the acquisition culture of just keep accumulating more and more is very much reinforced where we live in this, you know, in in the United States, you don't, you don't really get many pats on the back for downsizing your home, (laughs) you know, or deciding to not buy the new car. Mm. You know, nobody, nobody throws you a party, a housewarming party because you decided to, you know, like, um, insulate your attic to make it more, (laughs) to make it more energy efficient versus, you know, go, going out and buying a a home that's twice as big as you really need. People don't directly give you those pats on the back that much for doing those other things. They just give you more status. Like there's that, that feeling that you, because you have more wealth, it means that you're smarter. It means that you're, you're someone to that, that's more important, that your voice has more, meaning and so you're taken more seriously and given more of a respect in society but by showing an outward display of of having yeah um there was another another thing that i was thinking of you were talking about growing up with this idea that we're all connected and it's and it's not okay for any country to be in desperate poverty or any group of people and i'm just thinking historically you know, we have, up until recently, been moving in that direction. Like after World War II, there was a real attempt to integrate the world more um, in terms of the, our connection. You know, the, the creation of the United Nations and and a number of other sort of global initiatives that were designed to to begin the process of not letting so many people fall through the cracks and unfortunately many of those things are more symbolic than than they've actually been able to yield real results 
but there was a statement on the part of the world community that we are all connected. And there was a, like a declaration of human rights and, mm -hmm. and beliefs that certain things were, were inalienable rights to people. They weren't just commodities that they had to figure out how to purchase. Um, and it feels like there's a retreating from that now, especially oh, yeah. with this election, what's going on in Great Britain, other movements in Europe, their you know, right-wing parties are gaining more popularity. It just, it feels like we as a species are kind of turning away from that openness to being more afraid and more protective. Yes, on... In our sphere, in our white privileged sphere, absolutely, like or or you know um, degrees of privilege. <laughs> in but anyway, but but I also see how people who are indigenous to this to North America are uniting, and even internationally uniting around things like the Dakota Access Pipeline in a way that is is I wouldn't say unprecedented, but it's been a very, very long time since there's been unity among these tribes of of um Native Americans and Native Canadians. <laughs> I don't even like that term anymore because America and Canada are names that were imposed upon yeah. them, but you yeah. know what I mean. But anyway, um that and then watching grassroots efforts sort of coalesce around supporting them which in a bigger way than has I've seen before or know of before is encouraging. It's still small because we don't have the press. We don't have the media. We don't, you know, just to get it taken seriously that there's actually a real important universal um, idea behind protecting the water there and having that be the way, this be the sort of standoff point around who gets to be, to, to use our resources or to take risks with our resources. I think that that seeing that as a an important and serious thing is is happening on a bigger scale than I've seen before. So that's encouraging, though it's mm -hmm. still still a long way to go, obviously. And oh, there was one thing that I was going to say. I don't remember what sparked it, but I was thinking about a friend of ours who uh, I went on a bike ride with once and who told me about a friend of his who was getting gearing up to and I may have talked about this before but anyway he was his friend was gearing up to buy a big screen television and my, our friend was telling me about how he said to his friend you could take that money and get yourself a nice bicycle and and would you rather see yourself sitting on the couch watching things or would you rather be out in the world and that friend bought the bicycle and of course didn't regret it and um the thing that really struck me in that story was the bravery of my friend to actually speak up about his his thoughts there, to actually intercede with somebody who's just thinking about something that's only you know going to affect him supposedly. Um, and for me, that stuck in my mind as an example of how it, there's a risk there. You take a risk when you say stuff like that. There might you have to think about your tone. You have to think about you know, you're, are you judging or how, how you can, your relationship with that person. But there's, you're sometimes holding back something you know or think is actually holding back a gift. And I tend to be quick to think that if I have a thought that contradicts what someone else is thinking or planning, um, that 
that it's not okay to speak it. I think that has to do with Protestant upbringing on my mother's side of the family. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, I just, I really just wanted to mention that because that's something that I was thinking about the other day. Mm -hmm. um, so I was going to turn to uh, looking at the messages I got from people. Uh, I'll read to you something that I wrote that I, that I received. And it says, this is from Jason B. Um, hey, love your podcast. I've gone back and listened to many, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I don't want to just read the compliments. I want to read the part that's <laughs> not that I don't appreciate them. Um, oh, he says, I particularly enjoy the way income equality finds its way into the conversation. I get the sense that you have more to say about the role of e our economic paradox plays in climate change. And I actually wrote him back and I wanted him to tell me more about what he meant by economic paradox. Um, and he wrote, I'm not sure I can articulate what I see as a paradox in economics. I just feel a strong sense of contradiction in the way property slash inheritance supersedes any notion of the commons. There's a little bit more here. And he talked about something that Thomas Paine had written in his paper, Agrarian Justice. He does a wonderful job of describing aspects of progress, poverty, common rights, and private rights. Anyway, it's something I haven't read. Have you? Any chance? No. 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 Makes me want to read it, though. Um, yeah, it does. Me too. Maybe next time we will we will have read it and we can talk about it. Um, <laughs> but it, I, I mean, it, for me, that's a central question when you look at like the Dakota Access Pipeline. Mm. How did these decisions get made around where, like, which communities are going to bear the the brunt of this economic system? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the reality is we have a, an economy that's dependent on extractive energy mm -hmm. and that carries with it certain risks for pollution, for degradation, you know, um, the water systems being contaminated, all those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and who, who bears the brunt of that? It's, it's not the 1%, no. you know, they, they have their allies in, and high places of, of government and industry who will take care of them so that those pipelines don't go through their communities. Yeah. And that's, that I think is, is some of that economic paradox or that, that inequality, that unequal distribution of power and, and, and voice in the process. Well, it's an interesting point that the idea of inheritance, it's like, oh, you know what, that has a lot to do with the problem. That we have this idea that whatever you have, you can you can pass on to somebody else exclusively when you when you leave the this realm. Mm. That's that's a little bit. I mean, because that that drives a lot. Like I have had on my mind for the last two weeks, the word reparations, and and actually how important I think that is. And I feel like I want a T-shirt that says reparations on it. Or something along, you know, maybe uh, elaborating on the on on my meaning for wanting to wear that word, because I feel like um, like we need to actually set things straight, and we're not we're prevented from doing so in terms of equal distribution of wealth because of this idea that that's not the way it works. The way it works is you get you whatever you started out with wherever, you know, what advanced pieces you have on the monopoly board. Um, and, and you get to you, it's yours and you get to collect 
rent and you get, you know, I'm going into a monopoly analogy. If you never played the game monopoly, it's a great lesson in capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as you own the, I mean, people can't help it. They land on those properties and they have to pay you rent for, you know, no choice. You know, it's like, that's the way, that's the way it all works really. Um, anyway, so I, I, I just been, I, I went through a moment of sort of devastation this week thinking about the country because we had Thanksgiving and, uh, and, uh, and this country that we're celebrating. So, I mean, I think the idea of giving thanks is wonderful and being with our families is wonderful. And I don't want to get rid of the, uh, the holiday, but I do feel disturbed by the history around it and, and the lack of acknowledgement of that in, in a certain way. I mean, some people do, but some people don't. And that this is a country that was, this land was stolen from people. <laughs> and, and, um, and then it was built up on the, by, by people who were stolen from other continents to come do the work for us. And then the descendants of those that remain are still trying to pull themselves up from, from major, major, major trauma. Yeah. And, and, and then when you layer on top of that, my understanding of the history of the holiday is that it, it became a national holiday right in the middle of the civil war huh. that Lincoln established it in, I think it was 1863. So there was a recognition that, that we're going through this like major seizure in our nation mm-hmm. of, you know, all of these Southern states wanting to break off and there's this there's this potentially fatal blow to us as a united people that's going on and and there's a a need to acknowledge those things that we're grateful for about this country as well so i don't know there's i mean it is it is one of those holidays that i kind of like yeah uh, i like the spirit of it of yeah. thanksgiving mm-hmm. the you know the historical part of it you know it's 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 our myth it didn't really happen you know there, there wasn't there wasn't like a big feast with turkey and all this kind of stuff yeah. you know there was a lot of uh, mythology that's grown up around you know the actual occurrence mm-hmm. um, but i don't think there's anything wrong with the sentiment behind it the i mean sentiment being the, the, of, of giving of thanks for what yeah. we have in our yeah. lives yeah and you know recognizing recognizing that 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 there was a historical context that that we're sort of replicating that mm-hmm. that only bears a little bit to the reality yeah. <laughs> um would probably be helpful to to sort of reclaim the actual perspective historical perspective um I have a lot more problems with other holidays, especially Christmas. Yeah, well, well, it's it's all about consumerism, especially yeah, as we talk about climate change. Yeah, like we're we're in we're on the verge of the um, like the most deadly season we have in terms of impact on our yeah. on our climate. Right, as we madly rush around to buy stuff that's manufactured from polluting industries. My, my <laughs> you know? nephew who's in college um, <laughs> sent a snap, like a Snapchat photograph of um, a woman standing above, by her car in a parking lot with the trunk open and the, the car is just, she's just sort of standing there, um, you know, not, not moving, um, just looking at 
the inside of her car, which is just jam-packed with shopping bags. And he wrote as a caption, contemplating life choices. And I just thought, like, oh, well, I'm glad that he's thinking that way. <laughs> <laughs> this is a child who had a whole toy room growing up, like a room with shelving and just toys to the ceiling. That uh, <laughs> he's thinking, like, yeah, that this is actually a choice. So you don't have to live like this. Yeah. You don't have to make this choice. Right. But I was saying to Beth last week when we talked that, you know, I had tried my Christmas experiment last year asking for people's action on climate change as a Christmas present. And this year, I think I'll just ask, I'll be, I'll be much more pointed. I'll pick some, some place that I want them to donate to rather than buy yeah, new things. Right. Um, and, and I mean, I yeah. like the experiment because it, it was an attempt to engage people on a level that would go beyond, you know, the, the, the one little drop in the bucket towards me. Um, and I think that it was successful and that it made them think. Um, but ultimately, uh, I still, there's probably further I can go in that regard to be more of an, even more of an example of it, you know. It's funny, as soon as I decided that I was going to do that, I started thinking of things I want. (laughs) 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 So there's actually two directions I can think of going here, and we don't have, you know, we probably don't have time to go in depth into both of them, or there may be something that we can explore down the road, but let me tell you what they are. One of them is, to talk about the idea of reparations and what it means. And maybe there's some research I need to do, or maybe there's something that you know. So that's a possibility. Um, what it would actually practically mean if we were to actually try to take that on as individuals and as a society. And then the other thing is, um, and I'll just, I'll just tell you the thought. Um, I was thinking earlier when we were talking about Bolivia and being a child and thinking about... Um, you know, thinking of us as a one big us, um, humanity, um, that, and also with climate change, you know, really bringing it into sharp relief, the reality of the number of human beings on the planet being an issue, as we can, can keep expanding the size of our, our, keep expanding our numbers for, for indefinitely, but we can't because the planet can only hold so many humans. Um, I think of what Naomi Klein said when she was asked about this um, in a talk that I watched online, um, when she said that she feels like the issue of um, of um, population growth has is overstated, in that um, the people that are being targeted when you say that are usually the the poorer people, the black and brown people. Um, and that when people are given the resources they need, they have less children. They mm-hmm. choose to have less children. Right. And, um, you know, I found myself thinking that this actually ties into feminism because mm-hmm. women are not empowered to be in charge of these decisions um, in the way that they should be. And the way that we, when you grow up as a girl in society, <laughs> in most societies, you get super protected or, or, or um, judged for your decisions around your sexuality in a way that, bo- that, that male children or young adults do not, do not get judged or, or controlled. Um, and um, I think that in a rational world, we would be, and women are, and girls are taught in a way to be more mature than boys around these things because they have to be physically, you know, if they, if they get, if they get guidance there, they, they get that message and they, 
they take on more. Um, but I think if we, in a rational world, we would be training our young to um, really support girls to make good decisions around this and to be in charge of the decisions. Mm -hmm. And so that unwanted pregnancies wouldn't happen anywhere near as much because girls would be able to think well around it. Um, and then they'd be supported when, when their decision, whatever the decision is. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I, I I'm frustrated that I can't remember the source that I heard this from, but there was a, um, a study recently that, that pretty definitively showed that the higher, uh, higher level of educational attainment that girls uh, reach yeah. the the lower number of children they have. Right. So it it's not it's not a big mystery. <laughs> you know, if you're really worried about about overpopulation, mm. one of the approaches would be to make sure that girls get good education, and that they as they see their options in life open, they will choose to have fewer children. I mean, if you're living in a society where your worth is based on the number of children that you're able to surround yourself with and your sense of security is based on right. the number of children that you think can take care of you as you get older, oh, yeah. then then you'll do that if you don't see other viable options. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not that they're less intelligent because they're not educated. It's that they're making the smart choice. They're making the smartest <laughs> choices That's based on what are available to yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm. So reparations, do you have any well, what, knowledge about that? Reparations in terms of, of what and who? Um, well, the term is usually, it usually comes up around, around the idea of um, black people in the United States around um, the, the aftermath of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I think it could be applied more widely, but, but we could start there. Yeah. I mean, we... We paid reparations to Japanese families who were interred during World War II. Mm. So this isn't a foreign concept. Right. There, there is a mechanism. We've yeah. done it before. Mm. Um, where it where it gets tricky, not tricky. Um, in order to <laughs> in order to pay reparations for something, you have to believe that something happened that you should repair. <laughs> Okay. So, so at a certain point, we recognized that that rounding up Japanese Americans and putting them in camps was really wrong, right. and we wanted to pay for that. Um, we've we've at least um, acknowledged that slavery was wrong, but I don't think that we've even remotely come to grips with the impact that it's had on our country in whole, as a whole, um, for African-Americans in particular, and that we feel an obligation to have to somehow repair that. Like we don't, we'd like to think that that wound is now healed. Well, we had, you know, we abolished slavery. We had the civil rights movement. It's time to move on. That's been healed. And nothing could be farther from the truth as far as I can tell. I mean, I don't think we've even come close to acknowledging how much of our, of our country was was based on slavery. I think, okay, so let me, let me now like point the lens a little bit more focused on one place where I, it looks like more liberal thinkers are stuck, including possibly including myself. Um, 
Um, and that is where we think, like you just said, that we couldn't possibly be further from the truth with the idea that, that it's over and that it's healed. It's not. However, I don't want to have to give up my, you know, whatever privilege or I don't, mm -hmm. you know. And my first thought about it is really that, well, if you look at the distribution of wealth in, in this world, in this, in this country, um, the, the reparations aren't going to really come from me. They're not, I mean, there might be, you know, like I could imagine a hundred dollars coming out of my yearly income towards it where millions of dollars comes out of Donald Trump's or someone else's or, or, but then there's also like, when you look in the South, then now, then it gets really problematic. Like, well, you know, I, when I was in my twenties, I met someone around my age who owned 200 acres of land because it was in his family. And that, that was like Northern Florida. There had to have been slaves, you know? Yeah. And like, how, how right. is it that he owns all this land? I mean, obviously he didn't save up and buy 200 acres. He's freaking 26. Right. You know? Um, I mean, I, th I think, I mean, my own mind, the only way of really doing this at this point is to have national policies that acknowledge the damage that was done to African-Americans mm -hmm. and to initiate uh, policies that directly benefit them because of the history. So there would be massive funding of schools in black communities, right. um, infrastructure projects, ways to enable African Americans to to amass capital. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, dis the the inequality around how much whites have in terms of capital versus yeah. blacks is, is really stark. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things around home ownership, starting businesses, all kinds of ways to affirmative action. Yeah. Well, hiring. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's one that, that we did take on mm -hmm. from recognition. I mean, in some ways that's mm -hmm. one little piece of reparation. Right, right. It's not nearly enough. Right. It's, I mean, it, but, but I was asking if that's what you're thinking as one of the things. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you could take on a process of, and this I think would, would be way too much to actually pull off, but you could go through a process of trying to identify individual families who can trace their lineage back to slavery yeah. and property owners, white property owners mm -hmm. who benefited from slavery. But I just, I just think that that would be too difficult. And I, and I don't mm -hmm. know that it would really get us to where we want it to be. Which... Yeah, well, we want to be in a place where we start to see race as a mythology that there's, there is such a thing as different races. Right. I mean, it's sort of like saying brown haired people are a different race from blonde headed people. Yeah. You know, like it's just, it's, it's, it's artificial. We've, we, we've come to accept it. You know, we've come to not only accept it, but like not even quite, not even realize that there could possibly be a question, but ultimately it's, you know, it's sort of like your family looks different than my family. We're different. Yeah. You know, just, it's, it's overblown. Um, to say the least. So, you know, we could get into a place where we even codify that even more. And that's that, that I agree with you. It could be problematic on a lot of levels. But yeah, yeah that, I like what you're saying about society, at least societal changes. Another thought that just occurred to me, I, it's a huge what if and, and, you know, 
I obviously don't expect this to be a practical thing that would ever happen anytime soon. But what if, anyway, I'm just going to say it. What if we lived in a world where as soon as you're born, you are guaranteed one seven billionth of the world's resources or whatever, however many people there are, that, that, you're, that you're guaranteed that you get a chunk of, you get your food, you know, your amount of food and your place to live. Um, and whatever healthcare is available, you know, whatever it is, those those basic survival things are guaranteed to you. Supposedly, our constitution does something like that, you know, by saying we're guaranteed the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But um, I just found myself thinking, if we really took that seriously, that every child born into the world is guaranteed enough to keep them alive, mm-hmm. um, assuming that the, the resources exist... Um, I wonder if that would change the fight of over, over abortion. Oh gosh. I didn't know you were going to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you think I would go? Maybe (laughs) I didn't know, but it wasn't abortion. (laughs) Well, I know it's off the topic of climate change in a certain way, but. Hmm. Well, yeah, maybe it does go back to the, to the idea that, that when people, feel better taken care of, they make better choices around whether or not to have kids. Mm. And And they feel more in control of of their lives. Well, what I thought of is that society would then have to contend with this being not just about one woman's choices um, or one family's choices, um, and would realize that that any that the, it's just another way of getting at the the big us like if we if we actually took every life that's that uh, seriously that's not the word i want but if we if we honored mm. each life mm-hmm. to that degree um and thought of each one as us then um the decisions we mm-hmm. make about the resources we have would be less about me about wait a minute, are you going to be taking away my chance to get wealthy or my chance to be comfortable or my chance to, to escape, get some relief from the stress that I feel, you know, uh, at least right. have some hope, you know, anybody who's buying lottery tickets, you know, you're looking for relief, believe me, and I've done it too. So <laughs> just a moment's relief, just the dream, just the dream. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Can't win if you don't play. <laughs> oh, no. Now we're starting like an advertisement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anything else you want to say? No, I don't think so. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for having another conversation with me. I think I'm going to be interspersing conversations with you between conversations with others for as long as you'll allow it. One thought I had is that if I'm having regular conversations with you, you know, my husband, who I find a, funny but a little bit annoying... <laughs> But at least able to listen and we're on the same page with a lot of our thinking. Um, Then perhaps I would be brave enough to take on conversations with people whose thinking is further and further from my own. And basically just give them a chance to talk it out Mm -hmm. and maybe just ask them a few questions. So, So some of these podcast conversations may at some point become conversations with people who think completely differently than I do Mm -hmm. um, about these issues. Um, But who may be less annoying. Uh, no. <laughs> um but but the point being that um if I can imagine doing that 
um, alternating with conversations with you, then, you know, I think I might have a little more attention spare to listen to things that are different than my own thoughts. So let's see what we can look forward to there. <laughs> Hello, cc.info is the website for this podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can get it on Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. So um, stay tuned. Um, all right. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Thank you.